Before I will welcome everybody to the latest version of uh, IS Evercast, and uh, we're incredibly fortunate today because we've got uh, Ryan Dashwood, who's an emergency physician, particularly from the south of the Shoalhaven, uh, and an emergency physician of Indigenous background. And today we're going to focus on the interface between Indigenous people and uh, the emergency department, and in particular how that relates to uh, us in the Illawarra Shoalhaven. We would generally accept that in providing good patient care, it's important that there might be a meeting of the minds that when we are speaking to our patients, we're ostensibly speaking the same language, both culturally and uh, in terms of the words that we use. To do that, we have to have a bit of an insight into cultural perspectives of the person on the other side of that conversation, apart from ourselves. Uh, so if you look at the Illawarra Shoalhaven, particularly with regard to Indigenous groups, um, we've got about 10,000 Indigenous residents, traditional owners, which makes it about 3% of the population in this area, surprisingly, mostly from the Darawal Nation, but that's in turn made up from uh, 8 to 10 uh, different clan groups, like the Wadi Wadi and the Kimilaroi. Ryan, as I said, is an emergency physician in the Shoalhaven. He's got excellent qualifications to give us some insights into uh, how we can best provide care to that group. Welcome, Ryan. Thanks for having me. I'm going to get you to uh, do the first thing, which is the acknowledgement of country before we kick off, and uh, and then I'll start asking you a few questions. No worries, it'd be my privilege. Um, yeah, so I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that we're meeting on today, as well as all the lands of your listeners. Uh, to the elders past, present, and those that are coming up in the future, protect us, and I hope you all have an educational day listening to me. Excellent. So... To start off with, Ryan, can you give a bit of a short pricey of your background? Yeah, sure. So, as you said, I'm an emergency physician. I finished my fellowship just over a year ago now, and very lucky enough to get a staffy job down here at Shoalhaven. I've also BMO around Liverpool, got my trauma experience up there, and I love a little flashing down a barrel as well, just to get a good little mix of things. Me personally, I am a Budawang man, so part of the UN nation. So for the listeners out there, my traditional lands are around the Ulladulla region, to give you a, a bit of a landmark. I've never lived on my lands. I grew up in Sydney, mascot boy, airport baby. And before I did medicine, I was actually a cytogeneticist, which is a bit of a interesting wow. thing that I do. <laughs> have a bit of a chat about that, a lot of prenatal diagnostics, old-fashioned amniocentesis, CVS, which is all starting to fade away now and everything's, we've got newer ways of doing it, so I got out at the right time. So there's a few things that we can talk about today and I'm really excited to be part of this today and see what we can explore. Okay, so as the initial part of the exploration, can you give an insight into the importance of that acknowledgement of the country? Yeah, so... Some of your listeners are probably going, what's an acknowledgement of the country? What's a welcome to the country? If he's Aboriginal, why do you do an acknowledgement of a welcome? And these are all very normal questions. And over time, these are starting to become basic knowledge. So an acknowledgement to country is when anyone, Indigenous or non-Indigenous, just exactly what it is. It acknowledges the country that they're on, knowing that this land belonged to someone else. And think of it as knocking on your neighbour's door before you just let yourself in. It's just a polite thing to do. And when you think about our lands were forcibly taken from us, it's a very simple way to show respect, that we appreciate that this is traditional Aboriginal land and we're thankful that we can be here today. Whereas a welcome to country is done by a traditional custodian or someone who is from that land and they're welcoming you onto it. 
So a uh, welcome the country has to be done by someone who's from that land, whereas the acknowledgement can be done by anyone, black or white, doesn't matter what country you're from. It's just saying, hey, we're acknowledging that we're on your land. Certainly for me, creates a clarity with respect to um, how important that is to Indigenous people. Some people can certainly take the perspective that, you know, this is a long done deal. The uh, uh, Why are we starting to introduce, or why have we started in recent times to introduce this sort of concept when it's really something which is so far in the past, but the residual element of cultural respect is, is the key to it and uh, an understanding perspectives on the other side of that conversation from now on. Absolutely. We're starting to have a bit of an awakening now and realising that there's two sides to every story. And a lot of what we know now is from the colonisers' point of view. And we're not being offensive. I'm of mixed heritage and I appear white, but I acknowledge both. And I am the product of love between black and white people. And there's a lot of people who are the product of forced interactions. But... I see it from multiple perspectives, and I like to think that as a nation we're moving forward and realising that what we've learnt about Australia's modern history is just that, it's modern history from the colonisers' point of view. And we'll talk about that a little bit later and how it can change the way you think by realise taking a step back and looking at different perspectives. I think it's important uh, that I say before we go too much further that it's fully appreciated that you can't speak for all Indigenous groups or all Indigenous people. That's a very broad spectrum of uh, cultures and peoples. But it is going to be useful to get your particular experience and insight into Indigenous patients in the emergency department. So often when we talk or hear about Indigenous people, we do so as though it describes an homogenous group. Aborigines, Indigenous people, different terms like Koori, where do they all fit in? And it's really a story that, in fact, we're looking at something like 500 different clans or nations across the country. Do you think, given that thread and the differences that have to go with that, that it's possible to approach Indigenous patients from a, from a common perspective? It's a very hard question, that one. And if we knew the right answer, we'd be doing it. So if everyone just thinks back, for those who are trained in Australia, just thinking back to what you learn at medical school and approaching Indigenous we're not homogenous. So if you're near a computer at the moment, just Google the Indigenous Australia map and you'll see that, yes, we were made up of hundreds and hundreds of different clans or tribal groups. It's all interchangeable words. And each group had its own language, its own laws, its own medicines. And how do you teach Aboriginal or Indigenous considering that we are such a different group? And when you think back to medical school or even back to high school, it's kind of, yeah, we're just plastered as Indigenous people play didgeridoo and do dot painting. Or you might have been taught, don't make eye contact. It's like that's all generalisations. And like not every Indigenous group does, for example, not appreciate direct eye contact. And this is where we need to start looking at a deeper understanding of what Aboriginal means. And knowing that every area has its own stories and its own subculture, that we as Australians need to know the local lands. And there's multiple ways of doing that. We're quite lucky down here in the Shoalhaven. We have Aboriginal liaison officers. And for those of us working in the hospital system, as most of your listeners are going to be, Get to know your Aboriginal liaison officer, get to know your Aboriginal land council, get involved with the AMSs around the area and learn what 
appropriate for the local groups. Learn, you don't necessarily have to learn a few words, but it just get an idea of what's happening locally. And that's how you best get to help any community, whether Indigenous or not, is just get to know things locally. So when patients of an Indigenous background present to the ED, or for healthcare in general, in broad terms, are there differences in their expectations of that care when you compare to non-Indigenous people? As Indigenous people, we generally expect poor care, stereotypes, racism, whenever we're involved in any type of healthcare interaction. So coming to an emergency department can be quite scary for some Aboriginal people. And you have to understand that that's from intergenerational trauma, which is very difficult to get away from. And people are probably wondering what that is. And just not that long ago, Aboriginal babies were taken from their family because they were black or a crossbreed, for lack of a better word. And it was a horrible, horrible situation that Australia was in. The fear of going to hospital was there's a possibility your family members could be taken away from you. There's also, this is up until the 70s, so not that long ago this was all happening. And because Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are more likely to have other comorbidities, which is why we have things such as close the gap, we do die earlier, that hospitals are often a place for people go to die. So there's all this double negative stereotypes. It's like we were taken away from family if you went to hospital or you go to hospital to die. So already there's a lot of fear and anxiety and people don't want to necessarily be there. No one wants to be sick. So if you've got an Indigenous patient, I think what we need to do is don't approach them as, oh, they're Aboriginal, I need to step on eggshells. Be a good doctor and gain rapport. That's what we should be doing with absolutely everybody anyway. But just being aware that that person is part of a community, is a part of the genocide that their families had to survive, that there is a lot of trauma in that background. Just like any patient, you don't know what's happened to them or their family. So just appreciate the patient, talk to them, approach with a smile and try and meet their individual needs, which is hard to do in the emergency department. We only have a short amount of time. But I think as emergency physicians, we're the experts in getting things done quite quickly. And with a simple smile, asking someone how they are, you can gain that rapport very, very quickly. And don't make assumptions. We'll talk about that probably a little bit later. Okay. Following on from that and in that interaction, how important do you think it is to consider involving an Indigenous support person in that interaction? Oh, it, it can be vital. It's not necessarily every interaction needs an Aboriginal liaison officer or Aboriginal healthcare worker because, once again, we're just making stereotypes as well. Like, not every Aboriginal person goes to an Aboriginal medical service. You never know. It's like they might have family members at work there or there's a family group that they get along with, so they don't want to approach these services. A lot of people, if you're living in the area where your family's from, that Aboriginal liaison officer might actually be a family member. And if you're there with something personal, say, for example, an STD or something like that, you don't want your auntie or stories getting around. Um, but it's, it's an offer. And if you feel it's necessary, you don't know, just with every patient, you don't just go, oh, they appear homeless, I'm going to get social work. You delve into things, you gain that rapport, you have a chat and see what's appropriate. So consider the ALO. They can be essential sometimes, but don't make the assumption every Aboriginal person wants them or needs them at that point in time. 
are there any particular flags or uh, clues that you use in your interactions with Indigenous patients that would cause you to think, I need to bring in an ALO here? You kind of gauge pretty quickly how your interaction with the patient's going. And I think if you can tell, hang on, we're not, we're kind of butting heads here, this interaction is not going the way it should go, taking away the paternalistic medicine approach, if you think, hang on, I'm giving these recommendations on how to help this person, but it doesn't seem to be taken on board, perhaps we need to get someone else to patch the in-between ground to see what actually is going on that I haven't been able to get through. To be or, yeah. In your experience, what are the commonest missteps to make in approaching an Indigenous patient? Oh, well, let me start that with a story. Um, a very good friend of mine, she's a Torres Strait Islander GP, and she, when she was a medical student doing rounds with the professor of surgery, there was a small group, and they went to this Aboriginal man laying in the bed with pancreatitis. And the professor just kept going on alcohol, pancreatitis, alcohol, plus pancreatitis in the group. And this little old man spoke up to the professor and said, oh, I don't drink alcohol. And he got ignored. And the professor kept going on pancreatitis from alcohol. And then an entire medical student group is just associating that Aboriginal man with alcoholism and pancreatitis. He actually had a mass lesion that led to his pancreatitis. And because he had several presentations, it was a misdiagnosis. It took quite a long time before they realised this man actually had this mass lesion. He was just treated, oh yeah, he's Aboriginal, he's from he's alcohol related pancreatitis. And he didn't get the care that he needed. So that's just an example of people just making stereotypes and assumptions. Being Aboriginal itself is not a comorbidity. And that's the other thing as well. It's like, yes, we are at greater risk of health problems, but doesn't mean we have them. So talk to your patient, get to know your patient. All the things that's essential to being a good doctor is very important, especially when dealing with Indigenous patients. And I think there was the double edge in that story of not just the patient not getting adequate care, but the students or whoever was with the consultant getting that stereotype imprinted for them as well. Absolutely. Now, that's another group of students who are going to go, oh, yeah, blackface, alcohol, things like that. It's just a perpetuating the stereotype and not listening to the patient that's in front of you. It might just be me, but it's my impression that often we've got a much greater sense broadly in Australian emergency departments of the cultural mores of non-Indigenous groups from overseas, so Muslim groups, Hindu groups, those sorts of things. We are much more aware of issues around things like their modesty and dealing with their clothing and dealing with them in a culturally appropriate way than we are with Indigenous groups. Would that be your assessment as well? Is that You wouldn't be the first person to say that to me. It's a conversation that I've had with multiple people over the years, both in a medical and non-medical world. It's, I think it's very true that as a nation, we're evolving, we're having that enlightenment, we're realising that people are different and that's not just white Australia or European culture that is the norm. It's like everyone is different, people different practice different religions, um, different cultural practices throughout the world. And yes, we're starting to be more aware, but it's a bit disgusting that our native culture, so our traditional cultures have been ignored for such a long time and that yes it's great we're moving forward we're acknowledging things but it's just 
a little bit too slow on the uptake and I just hope it's not too little too late because there is a lot of damage that's been done. We need to work very hard and quite quickly. Um, as I was saying before, like our cultures have been devastated. It's like I'm not sure if some of your listeners are aware, but it's like not just things like the stolen generation, but being forced off your land, which is where you go to get your food, which is healthy. You go to get your medicines, you get your stories of who you are. You were taken away from just who you are. It's like that's it's just a central part of who you are, being moved off your land onto a mission, raised by a Christian nun, where people understand, like in the old days, if you were left-handed, the nun would hit you with a stick until you were right-handed. If we spoke our native language, that was a no-no. It was bashed out of us. Our traditional ceremonies, our corroborates, our songs, everything was taboo. We weren't allowed to do it. And now all of a sudden it's starting to come to light what actually happened and we've got to celebrate what's left. Many, many of our languages are dead and gone and they can't be revived. We weren't a written language group. It was all verbal. And unfortunately, a lot of those languages are gone, but hopefully now acknowledging cultural differences, embracing the world as being not just European white, we can have more stories, more songs, whether it's indigenous or not, it's just great to just be more aware and enjoy life from a different perspective. perspective. Okay. To follow on from the example of Muslim patients and different concepts of modesty, is there a particular approach or are there certain things in approaching Indigenous people that we should forewarn ourselves or remind ourselves of before we actually enter the interaction? So be respectful. And we can be respectful in many ways. It's like some of you have probably all heard of men's business and women's business. That as a example, once again, these are generalisations and it doesn't necessarily apply to the individual. But going and thinking perhaps a man with a prostate problem may only want to talk to a male doctor or a young female coming in with vaginal bleeding may want a female doctor. So we've just got to be aware. And like, that's just not Aboriginal as well. That's everyone. So just taking on board men's and women's business and respect for elders. In Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture, elders are the most important thing. They've got lived experience. They've got knowledge that we need to learn from. So they're so important to us. They're the gatekeepers of knowledge, wisdom and experience. But don't assume that every Indigenous person who appears to be over the age of 40 or 50 should be called auntie or uncle. It's like, yes, you might sound, oh, I'm going to be really culturally aware and appropriate here and call the elderly Aboriginal man, oh, Uncle Johnson or whatever, but ask. Not everyone wants to be called that. Some people are like, oh, I'm not that old, don't call me that. And age doesn't make you an elder. That's the other thing as well in our culture. So, yes, you do have lived experience, but you don't necessarily have that special knowledge. So, yes, approaching someone as auntie or uncle or Mr or Mrs, just ask. Just like whenever you have any type of patient, you go, oh, hello, my name is... How, do you, how would you like me to approach you? Or is it Mrs. Johnson or can I call you Samantha or whatever? And if you're dealing with an Aboriginal patient, just go, oh, can I call you auntie or uncle? They might say no or they might say yes, and, but they won't be offended. If anything, there will be a little spark of joy that it's like, oh, I've got a doctor that's recognising me and my culture and has some insight. I'm going to talk to you a little bit more and give you more information. 
And then that way you can have a better patient-doctor interaction and that patient will have better outcomes. And then that word of mouth that comes from that interaction, people forget about that. It's not just a bad Facebook review that your hospital is going to get. Word of mouth in the community is so important. They'll go and then tell their friends, their families, like, oh, there was a doctor at the hospital that just asked if I wanted to be called auntie and we smiled and we had a laugh and we spoke about things. And then this goes on about having a yarn as well. I'm not sure, I'm assuming a lot of your listeners have probably heard of that phrase. So having yarns, having chat, just don't jump into the rapid fire questions with the patient. So another thing to be aware of with Aboriginal patients is we like to talk. Uh, once again, generalisation, but just don't rapid fire, have you got this, have you got that? Just ask them who they are. And as I was saying before about the importance of who we are with culture and land, it's a good way to possibly possibly get rapport with an Indigenous patient is just to start off by saying, oh, so where are you from? Well, have you always lived here? Just try and tease a bit of information and you'd be surprised because one thing we do as Aboriginal people when we talk to someone is we have the yarn and try and find out how we're related or what the common ground is. It's just so, if, for example, uh, for your listeners could talk to an Indigenous patient and just go, oh, I see you're fr- on your front sheet, you're from X. Is that where you've always been from? Is that where your people are from? Oh, I want to go there and just drop the name of, say, a beach or a landmark or something that you'd like to go and see or that you've seen and discuss the common ground. Or even footy team or something. Don't assume every Aboriginal person loves it lives and breathes sport and football. But hey, it's an opportunity just to have a chat and you'll find that middle ground. It's only three to five minutes. It's not that long. Yes, in the emergency world, it seems like a long time, but just that extra three to five minutes, knowing that patient, knowing where they're from, getting that rapport, having a smile, then you'll be able to get a little bit further. In the emergency department, we're often confronted with conversations around ceilings of care, goals of care, and a life care. Do you approach that discussion any differently with an Indigenous patient compared to your non-Indigenous patients? Yeah, so death and dying with Indigenous patients, um, as you guys are all aware, as Aboriginal families, we deal with a lot of death and dying at an earlier age than others. So we often will have a bit of a, a fatigue from dealing with death and dying. We have even finished mourning one person and then there's another death we have to deal with. So keep that in mind, especially if you don't feel you're getting an emotional response that you think matches the situation. It could be we're just that fatigued from death that it's just the norm. Um, Once again, don't assume that that's every Aboriginal family, but that's something that you could come against. Um, Death and dying is not something that Aboriginal people on the whole are scared of. It's part of the natural life cycle. And that we consider ourselves that... We're here to make things better for the next generation. We're the protectors of the land. We're the passers of our verbal laws, our medicines. All of that is to be passed on to make things better for the next generation. So comfort and dignity of our elders, when if it is their time, that is something that's so important to give them that respect back because they are so important to us, uh, the older uh, people in our community. The other things to think about when dealing with death and dying with Indigenous patients is sometimes you'll hear stories of deceased loved ones coming to visit them. And that's quite common amongst most 
indigenous cultures across Australia that we believe the ancestors come to collect us towards the end of our life. So don't schedule us if you think, if you're hearing us talk about that, that's just normal. And it's also a part of the way the family accepting that death is approaching. So that's a way that we normalize it because in our culture that that's something we can't believe in. Um, not all Aboriginal people have that traditional belief. Some people may have an Islamic or Christian belief. We can practice any religion we want, just like anyone else. So, but if they, some Indigenous people really do believe that the spirits will come and visit. If they mention that, don't go exploring that. Just if someone mentions it, just normalise it and go, oh yeah, it could be their time. Just, just say that, accept yep. it. Don't make people feel judged. The other things with death and dying is talk about, well, the things that we should be doing with every patient is what does the patient actually want? For example, um, for those working down south of Milton, if you've got an Indigenous patient that looks like they've got a GCS of eight and you want to send them up to us for a scan, but nothing's going to be done, all it's going to be is diagnostic, would that patient want to possibly die en route away from their traditional land? Ask the family, what would that person want? Where would they like to die? Would they like to die at home surrounded by family? Is that an option? Find out, what, just like for any patient, what do they want and try and meet that need? But from an Indigenous perspective, the other things that people are taught are Oh, don't mention deceased patients' or family members' names. That's not every culture. Some people like to say the person's names. It's also individualised. So approach the situation, and if you don't know what that individual family want to do, just ask. And this is another good example of when you move to an area, start working in a new area, get to know the local beliefs and customs, talk to your Indigenous liaison officer, Aboriginal health workers, and get them involved watch how they approach a family and see what seems to be normal for that area and learn from that. Over the last 25 to 30 years, we've seen a lot of changes, or I've certainly seen a lot of changes in emergency department structures. We've accommodated things like access block or what used to be called exit block way back in the day. We've created specific paediatric areas. We've started to create specific geriatric areas. We've created specific, not so successfully, mental health areas. Is there anything about the way an emergency department is structured that, uh, in a broad sense, would make it more of a, a welcoming place to Indigenous patients? Well, we do have some evidence that shows that simple things at the front door do make a difference. Having Indigenous artwork on display, having pamphlets or brochures or on the TV screen if you have one in your waiting room, things that just show Aboriginal culture, just normalises it. So as people come in, it's like, oh, my people are recognised here. And, of course, a smiling black face at reception is useful. So seeing Indigenous staff working in the front line is less scary and less daunting. We already feel like a minority. But if you can see, it's like, oh, my people are working here. If so my people can work here, I'll be looked after. So it's just like making sure that everything's as multicultural as possible. We want people to feel comfortable. And if this is someone's traditional lands as well, which was taken off them, we need to make sure it's like, hey, we appreciate you. It's respect. And not everyone has to say sorry, because yes, we understand you personally didn't do anything to us that's devastated our culture. We just want to know that, hey, we're, we don't have to be scared of who we are anymore. We can walk with our heads up high and feel welcomed on our own land. You've got a sense of legitimacy. Yeah, that's a very good way to put it. 
All right, and finally, the stats in the Illawarra Shoal Haven are pretty much consistent with elsewhere in Australia when it comes to health in the Indigenous people. Greater disease burden, less access to higher education and subsequently shorter life expectation within the general community. A lot of the issues lies fairly and squarely in the sort of primary and preventative medicine arena. But is there anything, in your view, from an emergency medicine community perspective that would contribute constructively to the closing the gap concept? Yeah, so that's interesting. Um, don't, I've, I've thought about this and I don't know what the answer is. Well, I think we just have to have mutual respect and understanding. And in order to get that respect and true understanding, we need to look at things from different perspectives and start to change the way we're taught and think about things as a nation. Like in 1983, the year I was born, was our first Indigenous doctor was graduated, which, so in my lifetime, we've only had our first doctor, just to, so people know how far behind we are in regards to educational equality. I'd just like to point out here that the year you were born was the year I graduated. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> well, I see, we're all young here. Um, so it's, yeah, it's not that long ago. 1983 is not that long ago to only have one doctor then. It's like, yes, we're starting to improve. The Australian Indigenous Doctors Association couple of years ago worked out that, well, we make up about 3% of the population. The Illawarra Shoalhaven area has about 5% of the population identifies as Indigenous. But if the global, I mean, the, the national average of about 3% of the population being Aboriginal, we've got, I think, less than point, around 0.3% of the medical population is Indigenous. So there's a big difference there. And in order to reach a parity, they worked out 2,500 Indigenous doctors would have to be graduated to reach population parity, which is every medical graduate, because I think if they only pump out of Australia, it pumps out about 2,500 a year. So just to give the listeners a bit of context on how far behind we are in regards to education and quality. The other thing with education and quality, for those that were trained in Australia, thinking about our PDLs, the modern way of teaching in medical school, everything's based on stereotypes. Think back to every Indigenous-related PBL that you did, it was always a negative stereotype when involving the Aboriginal patient, such as a young Aboriginal person with hypertension, diabetes, or dialysis. One thing we're starting to push for is for medical schools is like we've got the 28-year-old Indigenous lawyer goes to their GP to talk about travel vaccinations for an upcoming holiday. You know, just we need to get away from why is everything in medicine and Aboriginal bad? Why is everything just so negative? When you start realising, no, we have Aboriginal doctors, Aboriginal lawyers, accountants. We, we don't all always have to be sick and dying. Going back to your question, like what can the emergency department do and emergency doctors do? I think it's just respect and making people feel welcome having that yarn, making rapport, showing that you have an understanding and a respect. And of course, it's always two way. It's always two ways. If you show that you're respectful and caring to your patient, that patient will open up. I think EDs need to get more funding for more Indigenous liaison officers, Aboriginal healthcare workers. If we could have full-time ones in the ED 24 seven, that would be great. Or more Indigenous nurses whose job is to liaise directly with the face and more the senior on. We could bypass so much crap in the middle. The well-meaning junior doctor who is spending a little bit too much time might make that patient think, oh, 
I think I, I need to get out of here. This is taking too long. I'm feeling uncomfortable, waiting, not knowing, being put in the room. It's like if we can provide, well, this is not just for indigenous patients, for everyone. If we have rapid access, appropriate care, being open and explaining what's going on, we might start to make a bit of a difference. And of course, like I said before, don't assume every Aboriginal patient will go to an AMS. Ask them who their GP is, if they have a GP, where would they like to go. I've also seen a bit of a blow up once with someone writing CTG on someone's script once. So there's a close the gap scheme. So certain Indigenous patients that are registered can get their prescriptions a lot cheaper or at a more affordable price. Don't assume every Aboriginal person wants that. It's like I'm an Aboriginal face, and if someone wrote that on my script, I'd be a bit appalled. I'd be like, I, I can, I can afford, afford this. Don't make assumptions just because I'm black. It's like you obviously haven't even taken my social history and know what I can do. So don't make assumptions. And just really important, don't forget that being black is not a comorbidity. We are the product of society, unfortunately, and doing global activities to improve access to education, access to affordable housing, and other things like going to a job interview and getting that job. As because if you're turning up and you look, you look Aboriginal, there is a chance that you're not going to get the job. Um, well, I've, I've heard stories from my grandfather um, when because he was of mixed heritage. You'd look at him and he would get a job because they thought, oh, he is white. But as soon as they found out he was Aboriginal, he'd lose his job. This, this happened back in the 70s. Mm. It's not that long ago. So people still have inbuilt unconscious racism. So just stop, check yourself, get an understanding, engage locally, and you'll make some big improvements. I think that's probably a good place to tie us up. Thanks for that, Ryan. That was... Lots of useful insights into uh, into approaches to the Indigenous community, and hopefully, people listening to this can bring that into play in the not too distant future. Fingers crossed. Thanks for having me. Thanks again for your time. So that was Ryan Dashwood, one of only three Indigenous emergency physicians in the country. So a great opportunity for us to get insights into, if you like, the other side of the fence in. The interactions that we have with Indigenous patients in our emergency departments. Thanks once again to Ryan for his time and for his insights. And apologies for some of the technical beeping going on in the background at stages. Always difficult to interview people in settings where you have ambulances and things backing backwards and forwards. Until next time. <laughs>